He is risen. Indeed. The emotion of Thursday and Friday night are still with me. You know, I'm so thankful again, and we've said it before, for the wonderful team God has given us at TCF. Almost anything you need done, somebody here can do it. <laughs> I want to thank God for the musicians that we had Thursday and Friday night, Hallett and Tom, and of course Ginger, who is part of a Jewish ministry, joined us with her violin. What a blessing. Also, thank God for the men who put these new screens. Aren't they a blessing for us? <laughs> and when it's my turn to lead singing, I especially appreciate that one back there because uh, the words are there and I don't have to try to remember them or look down and read them. Just so many, many blessings God has given us by the team that's here. And of course, not only those who install them, but men who work behind the scenes, Bruce and Bill and Steve and Kwong and Jerry, and I don't better stop listing names, I forget someone. But what a blessing for the team we have. I want to thank Jody and Tom for helping yesterday as we put the auditorium back together and put away all the candles and, and uh, all that's taken care of. What a blessing. Almost anyone who teaches ethics or morals or philosophy will tell you that they agree that Jesus was a great moral teacher, and many will say probably the greatest moral teacher that ever lived. Muslims, for example, even go further than that, and they say he was a prophet, and some perhaps the greatest prophet that ever lived. But that's all. Thomas Jefferson, infected by the Enlightenment and the philosophy of Thomas Locke, decided, yes, Jesus was a great moral teacher, but that's all. And so he obtained two copies of the New Testament and took out his razor and began to cut out all of the stories of Jesus' moral teaching, all of the accounts of things that Jesus said we should do and not do, and especially things of the heart. And he pasted them together and created his own New Testament. He said, all the miracles, all that stuff about divinity, that's been invented by priests. Twice in his lifetime, 1800 and shortly thereafter, he published the Jefferson New Testament, removing from it everything that hinted of the divinity of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know if it's still done, but I know up to 1968 it was because I read the account of uh, given by a son of a congressman that every freshman congressman who entered Congress was given a copy of the Jefferson Bible, which spoke of the great moral teaching of Jesus, but nothing of his divinity. Yet you and I know that's not enough. It's not enough. Many things say it's not enough. First, if we believe the Gospel of John, Jesus was deeply involved in the creation. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was with God. And and all things that came into being came into being with him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. But, of course, who was around to tell about it? <laughs> Only by the Holy Spirit did John record that. What about the virgin birth? 
The virgin birth, Jesus Christ, parthogenesis, born of a virgin without a man being involved. John again wrote, not by human blood or the will of man, but of God. Yet how many were around a few years later to say, oh yeah, it really happened, I was there. Were shepherds around? We know some were because Luke interviewed them. But how many were really around? The resurrection buried came forth from the grave never to die again now Elijah you remember was taken away in a chariot and uh, Enoch we he says Enoch was and he was not because God took him what does that mean did God let him die and took him we don't know Lazarus was raised from the dead to die again <laughs> but Jesus was raised from the dead never to die again and then the ascension there are these things that say yes more than just a moral teacher. Just more than a moral teacher. This morning we want to talk about the third of these, the resurrection. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, in which also... You are saved if you hold fast to the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried and he was raised the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, to me also. In the earliest days of the church, there were no New Testament scriptures. We've talked about this before in previous sermons and teachings that until the invention of the printing press to possess the scripture was really a very rare privilege. But in the earliest days of the church when the scriptures were just being written, it would have been even rarer. The early church fathers writing about those years described something that they call the rule of faith. The rule of faith seemed to be some sayings or creed that people could memorize and learn and test all scripture by that. And many believe that this is one of those rules of faith or an expression of it that Paul gives us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in which he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for the ungodly according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And then Paul seems to add that appendage of his own. Then he appeared to me. <laughs> so this rule of faith was that one of those expressions of the rule of faith whereby truth was tested. The Gospels, when were they written? Probably 50 to 70, except for John, written much later. And it's interesting as you think about the writing of the Gospels, they were written within the lifetime of people who had experienced Jesus and his presence. Most of you know I'm 86 years old. 
And someone asks, what's it like to be 86? Well, a lot of things, but one thing is this. I've lived through a lot. And sometimes I'll be in conversation with someone who has seen some documentary on television about some event I lived through, or they've read a book about something I've lived through, and they start telling me about it. Now, I really know more about it than they do, but they need to tell it, so I let them. But because I lived through it, I was there. I can say, ah, yes or no, or keep my mouth shut if they get it wrong. Think about that. The Gospels were written within the lifetime of people who had actually seen it happen. And so they could say, you got it wrong, Matthew. You got it wrong, Mark. You got it wrong, Luke. Of course, by John's time, when he wrote his, in all probability, they were dead. Some of you went to see the movie last night about uh, Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. Lee Strobel was an investigative reporter, worked in newspapers, in television. He's well known and quite respected and an atheist. In time, Lee Strobel began to investigate Christianity as an investigative reporter, and he was going to write about it. And the more he studied, the more investigated in time he became a believer. Much like Lou Wallace, who wrote the story Ben-Hur. Lou Wallace, who frankly is a distant relative of mine, began writing Ben-Hur to disprove Christianity. But in the course of his writing, he said, I can't deny it happened. It's real. Lee Strobel, in his book, The Case for Christ, he's written three, The Case for Christ, The Case for the Resurrection, Case for Faith, perhaps more. These are three of which I'm aware. In The Case for Christ, he cites a famous study that was done by Oxford University uh, classical scholar A.N. Sherwin-White. And Sherwin-White, after meticulously investigating the rise of legends in the old world, came to this conclusion that it takes at least two generations for a legend to rise to the point that the actual historical facts are no longer remembered and legend prevails. But these things written about Jesus were not written two or three generations later. They were written within the lifetime of those who experienced them. So this creed, Christ died for our sins, According to the scriptures, he was buried. He rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. Not legend, but fact. This morning we want to talk about some certainties. First is the certainty of the death of Jesus Christ. On Friday night we thought about the cross and the crucifixion. And as we meditate upon the cross and crucifixion, it's, it's, the scene is so horrible, we almost want to turn our eyes away. How can we face this terrible scourging? How can we face everything he went through? And yet we do face it. As difficult as it is, we face it. Because even though we are deeply grieved, we still cannot fully grasp the depth of what happened on that cross. The scourging was so horrible. Many died 
under Roman scourging. They did not survive. And, of course, the crucifixion itself was a horrible experience. I have not seen the Passion of the Christ because over the years I've meditated so much on what Christ experienced. I don't feel like I need to see it, and I'm not sure I could stand it if I did. How did one die on the cross? He died because, suspended as he was, the time came he could no longer breathe as he sagged. And so he would push himself up with his legs and get a breath and drop down and push up again and get a breath. When you think about that, every word that Jesus spoke from the cross was spoken with extreme difficulty. Speak and another breath. And finally, when the muscles of the leg became so exhausted that no longer could that person on the cross push himself up. He sagged and died. Now the Sabbath was drawing nigh in just a few hours away, about three hours away. And the leaders of the Jews said, according to the law, we cannot have anyone hanging on a tree on the Sabbath. We have to get these men down. But of course they weren't dead. How do you kill someone who is being crucified? You break his legs so he can no longer push himself up. And they broke the legs of the one on the right of Jesus, the one on the left, and they came to him. He's already dead. They didn't have to break his legs. These were Roman soldiers, hardened men. They knew death. They had seen it for years. They knew he was dead. There was no question. To make certain he was dead, however, they thrust a spear into his right side, piercing his right lung and his heart. And out from that wound flowed blood and the fluid of the pericardium. He was dead. Josephus the Roman historian, writing decades later, testified to the fact that Jesus was killed, that he died while Pilate was governor. Tacitus, the Roman historian, writing in 115 AD, testified to the fact that, yes, according to the records, Jesus died during the governorship of Pilate. And even the Jewish Talmud says Jesus died. There are other sources as well. It is certain Jesus died. The certainty of the tomb. Joseph of Arimathea was a very prominent man among the Jews, evidently a man of means because he had enough money to have hewn out of, the, of a rocky mountainside his own sepulcher, his own private tomb. And he was a man, according to Scripture, who was really seeking things about the afterlife and the truth, and he had heard Jesus. Nicodemus, you remember the Pharisee who encountered Jesus by night, recorded in John chapter 3, also was somewhat of a distant yet secret disciple of Jesus. But when Jesus died on the cross and the Jews were saying, get him down, 
Joseph, being a man of respect, a ruler of the Jews, went to Pilate and said, Let me have his body. And Pilate gave him his body, and Joseph and Nicodemus took Jesus to Joseph's tomb. Now here's the way a tomb was made. As one entered the tomb, there was a, a, a chamber, and in that chamber there would have been a slab or something on which a body could be placed. And the body there was placed to prepare it for burial, wrapped it in the right clothing, uh, the right oils and ointments to make it smell good. And after that was all done, around the walls of the tomb were loculi. Loculi were how do I describe slots into the wall where a body was taken and shoved and that was the final resting place because there was such haste the body of Jesus was left on the slab only partially prepared and then the Jewish authorities went to Pilate said you know his disciples will come and steal his body we have to make this secure. And so the stone had been rolled in front, and Pilate said, do what you want. So they put a Roman seal on it, which meant anybody that rolled that stone away would be violating a law of Rome and subject to some kind of retribution. And then they also posted soldiers as guards just to make certain the disciples did not come and steal that body. No one would have dared tried, and even if they had dared, they couldn't do it. Now in the 1920s and early 1930s, some liberal theologians began to put forth the idea, well, Jesus didn't really die on the cross, he just swooned. And he was in the tomb, the coolness of the tomb, he was revived, and so on. Pure baloney. If he had been revived in the tomb, how could he have rolled away the stone? Utterly impossible. We can declare with certainty the security of the tomb. And then let's think about some certainties concerning the resurrection. And we can declare that because of many witnesses. Let, let me tell you the story of Resurrection Day. After the body of Jesus was in the tomb and just temporary preparations made for burial, the women who had been at the foot of the cross hurriedly purchased the things needed for proper preparation, and then they went to back to Bethany because they could not have access at that time. The Sabbath was almost upon them. Bethany had been the headquarters of Jesus and his disciples while they were in the area. Remember, that was the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And that's where Jesus and the disciples always stayed when they were approaching, at least in the latter ministry, when they were approaching Jerusalem. That's where they'd spent the night before. And so the women went back to Bethany. Eight of the disciples went with them also. We have no idea where Thomas went. It seems that Peter and John, rather than going with the rest, went into Jerusalem and stayed in an upper room, probably the one where they'd had the Last Supper and the one that in coming days, at least for the next seven days, would be their meeting place. 
The women went back with eight apostles, eight of the disciples, or probably some other people. We know some other people because later we read about them. Went back to Bethany. Early Sunday morning, now Saturday, you remember, was a Sabbath. It was a solemn day. You can imagine the grief they were going through on Saturday. But Sunday mornings, the first day of the week, about daybreak, the women began their journey. Short walk back to Jerusalem. They knew where Golgotha was. They knew the tomb was nearby. They'd seen it before. And so they approached Jerusalem from the east, walked north around the wall, and came to Golgotha and the tomb. And when they came inside of the tomb, they began to say, who's going to roll away the stone? And suddenly they looked, and the stone was gone, rolled away. Because shortly after they had left Bethany, while they were on the way, a striking thing had happened. There suddenly appeared an angel, and Scripture says there was an earthquake because an angel. So an angel caused this earthquake, and he rolled away the stone and sat up on it and scared the living daylights out of the soldiers. They fainted. (laughs) They went into a swoon. And when they finally came to, they rushed to the Jewish authorities and said, Look, let me tell you what happened. And they said, Oh, we're in real trouble. And so they gave each of them a very substantial bribe and said, Go tell this lie to everybody. The disciples, you fell asleep, and the disciples came and stole the body. We'll make it right with Pilate. Now that last point was very important. Because if a Roman soldier were guarding a prisoner and that prisoner escaped, the Roman soldier was executed. So regardless of how big the bribe was they gave to the soldiers, you can imagine what a big one they gave to Pilate to make it right with him. And so the woman, women approached the tomb and saw the stone had been rolled away. Now Mary Magdalene did not tarry a minute she ran as fast as she could to get Peter and John and we could see her then going down the eastern side and entering at the Joppa gate and whatever where that upper room was finding them and says the stone is rolled away that's all she could say and they bolted out the door and ran as fast as they could we assume John was younger he did outrun Peter and got there first and when he got there he stoked and looked in And Peter coming up behind him shot by as fast as he could. No angel. They had departed for a while. You see, the women had already arrived earlier. And when they arrived, there were two men in gleaming white garments sitting. And as the passage Bill read today, you have their words a little different in, in different accounts of the Gospels, all the same except the third one that says, Why seek ye the dead among the risen? <laughs> and they, in their consternation, were told, Tell the disciples, and they started their journey back to Jerusalem. Then here came Peter and John. Nobody. <laughs> So they headed to Bethany to meet everyone else. About that time, Mary Magdalene arrived, and with tear-filled eyes, she looked in and saw, now this time, 
angels back again. She didn't go in the tomb. It's interesting. She was at the opening. Where is he? She sensed somebody slightly behind her and with tear-filled eyes looked around. With the tears in her eyes and the changed figure of the glorified Lord, at first she didn't recognize him. She thought he was the gardener. Tell me where you've taken him and I'll take the body. Jesus said, Mary. She recognized his voice, Rabbi, and fell down before him. Jesus said, don't hang on to me. <laughs> I'm ascended yet. Go tell the disciples. And so she headed to Bethany. What a meeting that must have been. Now, there were two men in that group who had heard Mary. <laughs> they had heard some, but not the full story. And you imagine they didn't want to leave, but business forced them to leave, and so they left and traveled to Jerusalem, not going around it, went through Jerusalem, came out on the other side. They had to go to Emmaus to take care of some pressing business, about seven-eighths of a mile uh, west of Jerusalem. And as they were walking along, there was another traveler walking slightly behind them and then joined them, and he walked with them, and they began to talk about the events of the day. Haven't you heard? And when they got to Emmaus, time for dinner, they asked, invited this fellow traveler to join them and they sat down and as they break bread he began to speak to them of the scriptures that spoke of the Messiah and suddenly he revealed himself as Jesus. <laughs> he left. They headed back to Bethany regardless of how important their business in Emmaus had been. He headed back to Bethany. Sometime later in the day, probably in the afternoon, we only had this mentioned once, he appeared to Peter. We don't know exactly when. But that evening, all the disciples except Thomas left Bethany and went back to Jerusalem to that upper room. They locked the door because they thought if the Jews find us, we're in trouble. <laughs> And suddenly in their midst appeared Christ, the glorified Lord. <laughs> he had come through a locked door. Y you really aren't Jesus, are you? <laughs> you're, you're some kind of an hallucination. He said, examine my hands and my feet, see the wound. John the Apostle, writing 1 John in chapter 1, describing Jesus, he said, We heard him, we saw him, and he handled him. And the Greek term there used for handled him 
is the word that you'd use for a blind man who is fumbling some object trying to identify it. We handle him. We fumble his body, so to speak. No question Jesus was there. Now, Thomas wasn't. We have no idea where Thomas was. <laughs> but sometime during the week, they encountered Thomas, and they said, Thomas, let us tell you what happened to us last Sunday night. Now, sometimes we give Thomas, I think, a bad name. We call him Doubting Thomas, but there was more to Thomas than that. On one occasion, when Jesus and his disciples were in Perea around the campfire, he said, we're going to Jerusalem, and they said, Lord, if you... Go there, you'll die, and try to persuade him I'm going. And Thomas said this, let us go with him and die with him. Thomas was not just a doubting man, but he was a realist. I'll not believe unless I can stick my finger in a wound in his hands and stick my finger in a hole in his foot. But the next Sunday night, he was with them. <laughs> And once again, Jesus, coming into a locked room, appeared, and he said, Thomas, thrust your finger into my hand, your finger into my hand, into my side. Thomas fell before him, my Lord and my God. These men knew what they had experienced. There was no doubt. And so for the rest of their lives, they travel from place to place telling the truth about Jesus Christ. They knew for certain what they had experienced. They knew what they had heard. They knew what they had seen. And they understood their mission. And every one of them, except John, was martyred. John died, they say, the martyrdom, the white-headed martyrdom. He died of old age in Ephesus probably. But all the others were killed and they believed the truth to the point they were willing to suffer and die rather than deny what they knew to be true. This past week I heard someone say, well I've heard that before, but how is that any difference than a Nazi soldier dying for Hitler? They believed in that. Here's my reply. I went to work for the railroad when I was 18 years old. About three and a half years after the end of World War II, a number of the men with whom I worked were combat veterans from World War II. And sometimes when alone over lunch, these veterans would discuss their experiences, not with others, but just among themselves. And I this 18-year-old kid <laughs> found myself in their presence, hearing their stories. Surprisingly, they accepted me in their circle. And there was one man, a Cherokee, broadly built, strong as an elephant, <laughs> Tom Crittenden, big smile. And sometimes when these men would tell the stories of what happened, there was an emotion they almost tried to put away by a degree of mirth. And one day with a kind of a that sort of smirk on his face, Tom Crittenden began to discuss something that obviously was troubling him. He said one night as our unit we our unit had moved 
quickly across the terrain. We'd taken real estate. Many had been killed. Germans had been killed. One night as we were preparing for the next day's battle, we were very close to the Germans. And we could hear their voices. And they were crying. They were sobbing. They were moaning. Because the next day they knew they were going to be killed. Had any of them tried to retreat, an officer would have pulled out his Luger and shot them. So they had to decide, will I die at the gunpoint of a Luger, or will I die in the sights of an M1? How different that is from one who goes forth into the world knowing the truth about Jesus Christ and willing to die rather than deny that. The resurrection is a certainty. The crown we call the crown of thorns they put on Jesus' head. The Greek word here is stephanos. Stephanos was a crown that was given to someone who in athletic competition was the victor. It was the a victor's wreath, so to speak. And that's the term used for that crown of thorns upon the head of Jesus. But later in the Revelation is the other word, diadem. Diadem is the crown a monarch wore. It is a crown a king wore. And in Revelation 19, verse 11 to 16, this Christ who was crucified, this Christ who wore a Stephanos of thorns, wears many diadems. Praise be to God, the victor over life and death. Amen.